welcome to Episode 7 of the LB Podcast for Monday, September 14th, 2020. I'm your host, Chris Markovich. On this week's episode, kids are back in school and their parents are back at work. But who still has a job in this COVID economy? And how long can the provincial governments realistically keep schools open before the pandemic spreads? I speak with NDP MP, House Leader, and Finance Critic, Peter Julian, about his motion for a wealth tax in Parliament, and how it links with a universal basic income. Plus, I speak with Canadian economist and best-selling author Jeff Rubin about his new book, The Expendables, and how the middle class is getting screwed by globalization. And later in the show, part two of our series on the Green Party leadership race, I speak with Dr. Amita Kuttner about their stake in the race, their representation as a candidate, and their path to federal politics. So after Labor Day, kids went back to school and some of their parents went back to work. Ostensibly, others are likely still out of work. Meanwhile, we saw that the CERB payments were actually delayed over a week to many recipients of the CERB, causing massive problems. On top of this, COVID-19 cases in Alberta and in British Columbia have risen to numbers not seen since the beginning of the pandemic. In British Columbia, the number of cases over the Labor Day weekend soared over 500, and in Alberta, over 600. Overall, the number of COVID-19 cases has risen over 25% in Canada. At the same time, we've already seen an increase in COVID-19 cases in the Catholic school systems in both Alberta and in Ontario. So why is there such a huge push to send people back to work and send kids back to school if they're just going to have to return home anyway? One might begin to find answers in the Statistics Canada report that was released a couple of weeks ago stating that the real gross domestic product, or GDP, contracted at an annualized rate of 38.7% for the second quarter. And while these statistics don't matter to the average Canadian, they mean everything to economists and large corporations. And according to a 2018 report released by author David Pilling, GDP doesn't even measure overall wealth, it only measures income. In other words, it doesn't matter that the 1% are the only ones making that wealth, that's what's being measured, and that's what economists actually care about. And it is that measurement of wealth that politicians, in turn, also care about. After all, governing is about making choices. And for the most part, since Confederation, our politicians in this country have chosen to make policy and laws that benefit the top 1%, while leaving everyone else behind. whether it's liberals or conservatives, they've been working for the wealthiest, the most powerful, and it's hurting families. One of the ways for us to tackle that is the super wealth tax that we're proposing. A tax on those who've got wealth or fortunes of over $20 million. We're asking them to pay a little bit more. We're gonna make sure that they pay their fair share. When we put this to Mr. Trudeau though, he made it clear he is not open to that because he doesn't want to tax the multi-billionaires. He doesn't want to tax the, the wealthy and the powerful. He talks about it, but he doesn't do it. We're gonna do it. And that's why we want to do this, so that we can pay for the programs that people need, the services, the healthcare, the pharma care, and the dental care that families need. 
Joining me now on the show is the NDP MP for New Westminster Burnaby and the federal house leader for the party and the finance critic as well. Peter Julian, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Oh, Chris, uh, always a pleasure to be with you. So let's talk first about your motion in Parliament on a wealth tax. Uh, the motion is M43. Tell us about that. Uh, well, what we've seen over the last uh, last decade or more is an, an unparalleled concentration of wealth. And that has been accelerated over the last few months, as you know. I mean, we're, we're seeing uh, profiteering uh, beyond belief. Uh, many of the billionaires uh, uh, increasing their fortunes enormously. So we really need to recenter the tax system to a fair tax system. We, we, the NDP has been calling for this for years, uh, but now we've reached the point where there absolutely has to be action that is taken. And that's why we, we are pushing the idea of a wealth tax. Other countries like Norway and Switzerland have this into place. In fact, they, their requirements are more severe than in Canada. Uh, but uh, we are pushing for the wealth tax as part of a number of measures, number of tools that can be used to establish a fair tax system. And with a fair tax system, not only do we reduce uh, the incredible levels of inequality that we're, we're facing right now, we also create the ability to make the investments that actually make a, a difference in, in regular people's lives. Now, along with the wealth tax, uh, other measures proposed by the NDP have also included a call for a guaranteed livable basic income, which was introduced in Parliament by your colleague, Leah Gazan, and that was Motion 46. It has now reached over 35,000 signatures. This is a very, very popular idea with Canadians more broadly, as well as folks in social movements. Why do you think that Canada still doesn't have either of these things, a wealth tax, a guaranteed livable income, or even going after corporate tax havens. Why do you think they still have so much power? Well, those are, those are really good questions. Uh, and uh, I, I think in, in, a, in two words, I would say the reason why we don't have these measures already uh, are liberals and conservatives. Uh, and over the last 20 years uh, with this uh, neoliberal or right-wing agenda, what they've done is, is concentrated wealth in the hands of very few. And the, the parliamentary budgetary officer's uh, latest estimate of wealth concentration now sees uh, Canada with the level of concentration of wealth that we really haven't seen since the late 1920s. Uh, so We've come full circle with the Liberals and Conservatives, and they're bringing us right back to the kinds of inequalities that existed at the time of the Great Depression. Uh, one, uh, one top 1% 1 of, of Canadians taking 25% uh, of all, all the wealth. And, and part of this is due to what has been put into place, a systemic ability for the very wealthy and very profitable corporations to take their money offshore. And the PBO did an estimate last year after an NDP request and they evaluated it uh, conservatively at $25 billion every year in tax monies that basically go offshore. At $25 billion a year pays for a universal basic income and a whole variety of other things when taken with other, other measures that can be put into place. And so we, what we need to do is actually work for that fair tax system 
put that into place and, and create the wherewithal so we can make investments in, in people. And, and I think that the, the reason why uh, Jagmeet Singh's call for a, a universal stimulus, uh, a universal emergency benefit, the benefit going to everybody who needs it, uh, received such a, a positive response from people is because we see with the Liberals patchwork that we've been able to force them to put into place how many people are, are basically being left behind. And so the idea of a UBI stimulus, a universally, uh, universal emergency benefit available to everybody who needs it, according to the parliamentary budgetary officer, is actually cheaper than what the government actually put into place. So the, these are good sense, uh, common sense types of initiatives. And, and I think what uh, encourages me is uh, we saw a similar shift in public attitudes uh, that we're seeing now around the wealth tax. Uh, it's evaluated that uh, the majority of even conservative voters support this idea. Uh, the idea of UBI is gaining speed. Uh, this is similar to what we saw after the Second World War. We went through the Great Depression in, in a remarkable concentration of wealth. There were uh, programs put into place, a New Deal program in the United States, and and then uh, with the Second World War, uh, there was a cracking down on profiteering, uh, a much more uh, fair uh, distribution of uh, taxes between individuals and corporations. And coming out of that, in the, after the Second World War, uh, Canada really uh, saw its, its greatest period of growth and the greatest investment in social programs, in universities, in, in, um, in transit systems, in making sure that the uh, healthcare and education was available. This is the same kind of, of attitude shift that I think we're seeing during this pandemic. And, and that's why the ideas that the NDP are bringing forward, I think, are, are getting uh, more and more traction with Canadians. And I like that you brought up the issue of the issue of income redistribution, because since the Second World War, since those efforts were put in place, we've seen those numbers go in the opposite direction, as you were saying and pointing out earlier, that the richest 1% of the population is taking even more of the wealth than they were 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I spoke with an author, a Canadian economist, maybe you know him, his name is Jeff Rubin. And I have some stats that I want to, you know, read out to you from the fact sheet on his new book that just came out. The year in which North American real wages peaked, 1975. They've since stagnated since then. The top American tax rate in 1955, you know, right after the war, 91%. Now it's 37. All of that tax money has gone back to them and... Everyone else, like you said, has been left behind. So with respect to the guaranteed livable basic income and the criticisms that are leveled against it, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to regulate it properly? We've let the very rich and the very well-connected get away effectively with thievery over the past 50 to 60 years. So to criticize plans like these you know, speaks to a greater ignorance of the real issues at hand here. Oh, absolutely. And these are very compelling figures that you're talking about, though, though I would go further when the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives has estimated that the effective taxation rate 
uh, for uh, large Canadian corporations. That's what they actually pay in taxes is, is uh, in the single digits. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's even in the negatives. I mean, Amazon effectively paid zero corporate income tax when you look at all of their loopholes that they exploited in the past two years. And they pulled in, you know, double digit billion dollar net revenues. And Jeff Bezos, the owner, is the richest person in the world. He could effectively eliminate global hunger several times over himself and still be a billionaire. Yes. And, and so we have the web giants that are not paying um, anything more than a, than a symbolic uh, level of, of, of tax or employee deductions. Uh, they've been let, let off scot-free. Uh, we've got the overwhelming amount of money going to overseas tax havens, the fact that we don't have a wealth tax. Uh, and we put all these things together, and it, it's, a, it's a choice that governments have made, both liberals and conservatives, over the past few decades. And the choice that they have made is to, uh, under this uh, ridiculous theory of trickle-down, is to provide all kinds of corporate supports, subsidies, tax breaks to the very wealthy in society. And, and they say that the benefits will eventually trickle down to Canadians. Well, as you pointed out, uh, real wages have stagnated. The average family debt level now in Canada is the highest in the industrialized world. And in fact, it's the highest in Canadian history. So families have struggled with that, the fact that uh, their income has plateaued and expenses because of government cutbacks in a variety of ways have actually increased. That what they have done to in order to actually uh, try to struggle through and survive uh, this uh, economic pressure is by borrowing more and more. And, and we see the impacts, for example, of the Liberals ending the national uh, housing program. The national housing program was ended and that skyrocketed the levels of debt that Canadian families are, are forced to, uh, to take on because there's no affordable housing available to them and the federal government just doesn't seem to care uh, to build them. Now, Mr. Trudeau will, will make speeches about building affordable housing and they, they, they've said that they're reestablishing the national housing program, but we've actually found out over the last five years they built 14,000 housing units. And, and this is when there's uh, 50,000 families a year that need, uh, need more housing in Canada, which means uh, that people that are struggling to keep a roof over their head have grown by a quarter million, while liberals have built 14,000 in order to accommodate that. Not only does that not even make a dent in the existing levels of homelessness and precarity around housing, it means that we've gotten worse under the liberal regime as we got worse under the conservatives before them. We really need a shift, but I I am optimistic when I see people seeing the amount of largesse that has been given to Canada's most profitable corporations saying, hold on here, during a pandemic, uh, really, shouldn't those supports be going to us? And if the government has as much money and resources that they can supply to all these uh, profitable corporations, uh, maybe this the sort of economic underpinnings we've been hearing from conservatives and liberals for so long that we can't afford to do anything more for Canadians, um, maybe that's wrong. Maybe it's a fib. And maybe what we need is some real substantive change in Canada. That's a welcome debate that I think will take place uh, in in the next election campaign, whenever that happens. Now, I'm glad that you brought that up as well, because that was going to lead me to my next question. Speaking of that shift, 
and of the of breaking the cycle between voting liberal and conservative, how is how is the NDP going to turn that into electoral success when the next election comes around? How are you going to get that message out to the people and really connect with them on a visceral, emotional level? Well, I think part part of it you, you've already seen. I mean, I, I think uh, when Jagmeet Singh became the leader, uh, there was a real uh, attempt to. Uh, to marginalize him uh, as uh, the first person of color to to be leader of a national political party, uh, the coverage was awful. And what it still is. Did, well, I, I I would suggest uh, we're starting to see a difference, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, that started to change when people saw him in the leaders' debates, and and uh, we reached a point. Uh, before the leaders' debates, where I think uh, NDP support was uh, lessened, uh, after the leaders' debates, uh, we saw more and more support building. And that's continued over the past year. So you may be right. You're right to say that the coverage has not been good, but the difference is I think Canadians are seeing through it. The poll this morning has uh, both the Conservatives and the NDP in the 20s. Uh, within the margin of error, uh, more or less, uh, which shows a building level of NDP support right across the country. And what we offer uh, as the worker bees of Parliament is we just get going, and we have an extraordinarily dynamic caucus that has been doing terrific work. We've got a leader who has been uh, going across the country, uh, socially distanced, of course, and wearing his mask, but meeting with Canadians. Uh, the difference... I think between the last election and the upcoming election is the last election was pre-pandemic. And as I mentioned to you, uh, after the Second World War, there was a, a deep need for people to see broad change. Folks had been through the calamity of the Second World War. Uh, we had defeated fascism. And the, and the women and men in service coming back from overseas wanted to change things. And that's why uh, the NDP's predecessor party, the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the CCF, actually was leading in the polls uh, coming up uh, into the 1945 uh, election. What happened was uh, the Liberals under Mackenzie King then basically adopted uh, so many of the NDP policies, the CCF policies put forward at the time, and managed to win the election. Uh, Canada was the better off for it because the CCF ideas uh, largely helped to shape that post-war prosperity. But they didn't adopt all of them by any means. And it certainly uh, left out um, huge swaths of the population. Indigenous peoples were forgotten. Uh, there, were, there was uh, a very disjointed implementation of the CCF platform that the Liberals proposed at the time. My sense is uh, this time around, People are looking for that kind of change. They'll be looking for the bold ideas that Jagmeet and the NDP has, have, have been offering. And they, I don't think they'll be uh, fooled by the Liberals' attempt uh, after five years of being largely uh, a party continuing the Harper agenda of the Conservatives. Uh, I don't think they will be fooled by a shift of uh, the Liberal Party now. Uh, the Liberals bought a pipeline and are willing to spurge up to $20 billion, uh, which destroys any possibility of Canada meeting its uh, obligations under the Paris Accord, let alone fight back against climate change. We've seen massive subsidies going to Canada's most profitable corporations. Uh, Mr. Trudeau said, uh, even after he, he showed uh, Bill Morneau the door, uh, 
that he was not going to raise taxes for the wealthy in any way, shape, or form, which means we continue to have a profoundly unjust tax system. And the, uh, the things that we've been able to force him to do, uh, Mr. Trudeau, uh, for example, a broader emergency benefit than he wanted, uh, supports for students and people with disabilities and seniors, he's implemented again in a very haphazard way, missing tons of people out. And, and so I like our chances if when an election comes. I, I don't think any of us want to see an election now during a pandemic because uh, that would not be uh, an appropriate thing to do. But it appears that some liberals want to force an election this fall. If they do, uh, we will certainly be ready. I want to pivot now to another issue that's really important. And uh, this week is the beginning of recovery month in Canada and around the world. And you have another motion in Parliament um, to uh, make September to be officially recovery month. Now, this one is motion M40. This is something that has been in the news and in activist circles for many years now. And it's an issue that's very important to me personally as someone who is uh, in recovery from addiction myself. Why do you think that this issue is still one that people on the ground have to fight for recognition for? And why is Recovery Month so essential at this point in, in the game? And what do you think is going to be the most important message for this Recovery Month this time around? Well, th thank you, Chris, for, for sharing that. And I, I think you're, you have said very eloquently why this is so important to so many Canadians. Uh, the issue of recovery uh, for any Canadian family that has been touched by addiction, uh, my family is no exception. We, we understand the importance of providing uh, addiction treatment programs, recovery programs. Uh, yesterday, uh, we commemorated uh, the International Overdose Awareness Day, and we've, we've lost uh, 16,000 Canadians over the last four years, uh, both to uh, overdoses, but also to opioid poisoning in this, in this country. It's fundamentally important that Parliament recognizes uh, the recovery movement across the country and uh, New Westminster, uh, which is one of the two cities I represent, is in a sense uh, the capital city of the recovery movement in Canada. We have a number of, of uh, terrific organizations that do fantastic recovery, recovery work, the last door uh, being notable among them. And we had uh, last year before the pandemic uh, about 30,000 people in the streets of New Westminster celebrating recovery. Uh, musical groups, there were, uh, the streets were basically shut down and people partied with recovery. Um, and uh, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was remarkable. It, it uh, was a very sober and a very exciting, uh, and exciting time to, to, be, um, to be in Westminster. Uh, I'm happy to say that the motion has attracted the support already of members of parliament from every single one of the political parties represented in Parliament. And I'm hoping that uh, all of us, uh, all of the MPs that support the motion, can come forward when Parliament reconvenes uh, at the end of September and get this motion through unanimously. So that's, that's my hope, uh, that uh, given the all-party support for the, for the motion, that uh, it, it will be something that can be adopted and 
henceforth, uh, September will be known as Recovery Month in Canada. As you, as you mentioned, it is so important to so many Canadians, uh, and past efforts have failed. Uh, I am uh, cautiously optimistic that this, this year will succeed. Peter Julian is the NDP MP for New Westminster Burnaby. You can find him on Twitter at MP Julian. You can sign his petition uh, for motion M43 on his website, peterjulian.ca. And you can sign the petition on motion M40 for the National Recovery Awareness Month on their website, recoverymonthcanada.ca. Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Stay safe and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much, Chris. Uh, Same to you. Always a pleasure to be with you and keep up the great work. Coming up, I speak with Jeff Rubin about his new book, The Expendables, and how Trump's success in the U.S. could alter future elections in Canada. And later in the show, I speak with Dr. Amita Kuttner about their Green Party leadership candidacy and the party's chances in an upcoming general election. Joining me now on the show is Jeff Rubin, who is a Canadian economist and best-selling author. His new book is called The Expendables, How the Middle Class Got Screwed by Globalization. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me on the show. My pleasure. So in terms of this book of yours, um, how did you come up with the idea of writing about globalization more generally, as well as the term The Expendables? Why are Canadian and North American workers and workers around the world deemed expendable? Well, I guess the genesis of this book came about, I was um, a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. It's a think tank out of uh, Waterloo. I was sort of, my expertise was in trade and energy. And I wrote two papers back in, I guess, 2017. One was how has Canadian manufacturing fared under NAFTA, a look at the auto and parts industry? And the other one was, has globalization left Canadian workers behind? And um, I guess that served as the, um, you know, sort of the kernel or the the foundation of what later became the expendables. Um, You know, both of those papers exposed uh, a reality that is very negative for Canada's middle class. And as it turns out, Canada's by no means unique. I mean, uh, the, what, what, I did, what I discovered about the Canadian auto industry held just as valid for the American auto industry. What I discovered about Canada's middle class falling so far behind was just as valid for the UK's middle class, America's middle class, Australia's middle class, or indeed, the middle class of basically every OECD country, of which Canada, of course, is one. Now, uh, I read your book, and uh, there's a couple of things that really struck me as very poignant in how you identified more the sources of globalization. And one of them in particular, obviously, as you already mentioned, is NAFTA, and how free trade agreements aren't exactly free. 
And there's always going to be, as you put it in your book, winners and losers. And the losers almost always end up being workers. So why do governments around the world keep pushing for free trade? And why are they beholden to the corporations that are pushing these governments to enact these free trade deals? Well, let's make the question a little bit more concrete. Why did the Canadian government specifically Christia Freeland, who was our chief negotiator, failed to protect the Canadian expendables in the same way that President Trump has gone to great lengths to protect the American expendables. And by that, I'm referring to auto workers in the auto industry, the steel industry, the aluminum industry. We signed a trade agreement. I mean, Christia Freeland claims that her mission in life is to defend Canada's middle class. But she doesn't seem to have any problems with GM closing their plant in Oshawa, where they paid workers 20 to $30 an hour, and moving production to Mexico, where workers get paid 2 to $4 an hour. She doesn't seem to have any problem with Magna, a Canadian firm, closing most of its production in Ontario and moving it to Mexico. Now, you know, if I'm a Magnus shareholder or I'm a GM shareholder, I'm going, Christia, you did a great job. But if I'm one of the people who've been laid off at the GM Oshawa plant or soon to be the, uh, the Chrysler Fiat Windsor plant, I'm going, Christia, you sold me out. And I guess the reason you sold me out is I'm expendable. I don't really count. Now, you know, I don't want to villainize her because she's in no means unique. That's a Canadian example of what's happened all around the OECD until Donald Trump came into the White House. Now, Donald Trump isn't the only one that has been touting fairer deals, quote unquote, for the middle class and for workers. Donald Trump had the exact same trade policy. Exactly. That's something that doesn't fit the narrative that the neoliberal press wants you to believe. But the fact of the matter is that had had the democratic elites not been as quite so successful as keeping Bernie Sanders off the ticket, and had he defeated Donald Trump in the 2016 election, guess what? That US-China trade war would be happening right now. And guess what? NAFTA would have been renegotiated because Bernie Sanders like Donald Trump, unlike Christia Freeland, thought that NAFTA was ripping off American slash Canadian workers. So you're right. And, and what that really speaks to is populism can hit from both sides of the plate. Okay. I mean, it can just be, uh, just be as much left wing as right wing. The common denominator here is a rejection of the global trading system and the 1% of the population that it serves. And it's a little bit ironic that it took a billionaire to raise that issue because he's certainly betraying the interests of his class. Now, um, I'm glad that you brought up the 1% and who makes all the money because I'm going to go over some of the facts from the sheet that I received from your publisher and you know, North American wages haven't, haven't uh, really increased uh, in um, real world dollars. Uh, The percentage of millennials who have reached middle-class status quote unquote is 59%. 
uh, compared to 67% of their, um, their parents' generation. The percentage of people uh, in middle-class spending in 1980 is, was 60%. Now it's 40. The top U.S. tax rate in the, uh, in the 50s was 91%, and now it's 37. Amazon in 2018 paid $0 in taxes, $0 on $11.2 billion in profit. All of the real money and real profit and real dollars is going to a very, very small portion of people. Yet these trade deals and you know, the, the people that tout them as being good for the economy are effectively lying to everyone. Well, you know what? Here's the question. Why do I care about GDP? Okay, every economist, every neoclassical trained economist, and I fall under that group. I used to be the chief economist of investment bank, so I know the, I know the domain, would argue that protectionism, trade barriers, will reduce GDP. And I don't have any debate with that. GDP will be bigger under a free trade regime, mobile capital regime, than any other regime. The question I would pose, though, is why does 99% of the population care about GDP growth? Because all the gains of GDP growth have accrued to maybe 1-5% of the population. Now, in economic theory, economic theory, neoclassical economic theory does not deny that there would be losers in free trade. But it, what, what it argues is the welfare gains to the economy as a whole are such that the winners can compensate the losers so no one is better off. And in theory, that is true. But in reality, the opposite has happened. Just as free trade has cast more and more workers onto the social safety net, the social safety net has been constantly reduced. And the very measures that would reimburse the losers, taxing inheritances, taxing capital gains, taxing dividends, raising minimum wages, the very redistributive mechanisms aren't allowed to work. And the argument allow against that is that while they're maybe well-intentioned, they'll hurt the very people they're intended to help because capital will move, production will move, you know, jobs will move. That's what the free and free trade really means, the freedom of capital to move. So yes, in theory, GDP, a bigger GDP, can make everybody better off, the very things that are making GDP bigger prevent it from being redistributed. So I'm saying for the 99%, why do I care about GDP? Let the 1% to engorge themselves on the spoils of GDP worry about GDP. All I want is a bigger slice of the pie. And if the pie shrinks, I don't care because I just want a bigger slice. A bigger pie has not meant a bigger slice for me. It's just meant a bigger slice for the 1%, to put it in very pie-sharing terms. Now, I also remember when Trump first got elected, one of the first targets in his uh, administration's uh, trade deficits was China. And a lot of people especially economists, warned that 
engaging in a trade war with China would prove to be very uh, devastating to the U.S. economy. But in your book, you highlight the fact that- It's a lot more that, devastating to the Chinese economy from where I'm looking. Yeah, exactly. So in your book, you actually uh, argue and you laid out that China's economy is not going to really suffer that much because a lot of what they've been doing over several decades is buying into U.S. bonds and using that capital in America's debt to finance their interests in other countries where they can leverage that money to build infrastructure and then uh, lean on those uh, on those right. debts from other You're countries. You're referring to the Belt and Road Initiative. Increase their ownership in those countries. Right. So, I mean, the question is, what has China done with the trillions of dollars that it has amassed from trade surpluses with the United States over the last two decades? Part of it, ironically, goes to funding the U.S. deficit, and that's not an act of benevolence to the U.S. taxpayer. That's to keep the value of the yuan low against the U.S. dollar, which is obviously important for the competitiveness of Chinese exports. What have they done with the rest of the money? They've recycled it into this giant Marshall Plan scheme. It's called the Belt and Road, where they build infrastructure in all these developing countries to create trade routes with China at its epicenter. Whether this is conquering the world or making a lot of shitty investments is, <laughs> it's not exactly like, China's beaten out Wall Street to build another port in Sri Lanka, okay? It's more like no one else wanted to build another port in Sri Lanka, and China's decided to do that, okay? And it's all part of forging these global supply chains. I think post-COVID-19, China's going to have to reappraise the efficacy of its Belt and Road project because that's been a game changer. But, you know, certainly uh, that's what China has done with these used trade surpluses is try to build a global infrastructure to assure that it will dominate global supply chains in the future. I think what China wasn't counting on was a bat peeing on a pangolin in a Wuhan wet market and totally reversing the direction of trade and severing those global supply chains of which the Belt and Road projects were trying to forge. Now, I'm glad that you brought up earlier the um, issue of the trade deals that were being negotiated and at the time, Christopher Freeland being the uh, trade minister. The Liberal Party in its history has typically garnered a lot of support from uh, Chinese residents in Canada and specifically in Vancouver, where a lot of population uh, emigrated from Hong Kong in the late 90s after uh, China you know, seized control right. of the territory from Britain. And mm -hmm. it relies heavily on that support to win elections. So when um, in your book, you talked about Huawei and its uh, CFO being uh, arrested by Canadian officials uh, because of its extradition treaty with the U.S., they were really reluctant to do that at first. But, you know, Trump leveraging his trade war with the U.S. or with China, rather, said, no, you need to go do this so that I can have my uh, so that I can have my concessions from China. 
That's right. And, um, you know, she's a pawn in this China-U.S. trade war. But to put it in broader perspective, to give you where this liberal government's head was at, they were at one point wanting to sign a free trade deal with China. So, you know, if you think our manufacturing sector has been decimated, you haven't seen anything yet if that were to go through. Now, that's not going to th go through. Um, not only is that going to not go through, but Chinese, you know, Sino-Canadian relations are probably at their worst since the 1970s. It's a bit ironic with Huawei because, of course, Huawei is accused of stealing all the intellectual property from Nortel. Like you might ask, why do we need Huawei or Ericsson for our 5G telecommunication equipment? Why couldn't Nortel provide it? Well, of course, Nortel went bankrupt and it's widely alleged that, that it was Huawei who stole their intellectual property and you know, led them into bankruptcy. So, you know, I just, I guess in this world, you know, like the globalists and certainly Trudeau and Freeland are globalists, thought that they could maneuver between the two warring giants. But I think what they're finding as have the expendables is it's really easy to get left behind. And that's exactly what's happened. So with a uh, looming presidential election in the U.S. and you know, globalization obviously is going to be a hot topic as it always is. But with COVID-19, as you pointed out, you know, at the forefront of everyone's mind, how do you think that's going to affect what voters ultimately choose to do when it comes time to marking that ballot? And is globalization going to be a factor as much as it was before? Or is the ballot, gonna, ballot result going to be that important? I mean, before COVID-19, globalists were thinking that, you know, a Trump defeat in November would mean a return to the good old days of global supply chains. And I think that's, that's a false assumption now, because after COVID-19, it's brought a new urgency to bringing domestic production back. Like when you desperately needed an N95 respirator mask or a ventilator, even though there was a Canadian company called Medicom that had, you know, millions of masks being produced in a plant in Shanghai, none of those masks could come here because someone from the Chinese government commandeered that plant and decided where masks could be sent or not or couldn't be sent. So the same thing happened with the U.S. So now everybody, there's a new urgency for domestic production. No one's concerned who has sort of comparative advantage in producing masks. And the point being that, you know, if you, if you want stuff, you better produce it domestically. Now producing something domestically means paying domestic wages. And here's perhaps one irony. All pandemics in the past, going back to the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, to the Spanish flu have raised wages. And they've raised wages for a very simple reason. They decimated the labor force. There were less peasants to work in the field. There were less workers to work in the factories. Hence the price of labor rose. Well, in this case, we're not looking, I mean, I know, you know, hundreds of thousands have died, but we're not looking at the decimation of the labor force like we've seen in past pandemics. But the reversal of global trade the repatriation of production back to home markets is going to have the same effect. And for the first time in 50 years, the expendables might actually look forward to seeing a real wage increase.
Jeff Rubin is an award-winning former chief economist and author of The Carbon Bubble, The End of Growth, and Why Your World is About to Get a Whole Lot Smaller. The new book is called The Expendables, and the book is published by Penguin Random House. It's out now wherever books are sold. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff Rubin. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, and uh, stay safe and have yourself a pleasant evening. It's great talking to you. I'll finish my wine now. Coming up. I speak with Dr. Amita Kuttner about their platform and what's going to convince voters to mark their ballot for the Green Party. Joining me now on the show is one of the Green Party of Canada leadership candidates, Dr. Amita Kuttner. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start by going over some of the reasons why you decided, A, to run for the party, and B, run for the leadership. That's a pretty big leap to go, to go right into a leadership race. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I ran in the last election for the party, and a lot of that was about frustration with the world, with everything, wanting it to change and not seeing political avenues or any avenues for that to happen. So the urgency of a lot of issues that are not being brought up, the way people's lives are so precarious and not being dealt with and not being helped. So that kind of encouraged it. I have a background in tech policy, so not seeing issues around AI and automation being addressed and also all the other crises we were already dealing with before the pandemic. So wanting all that to happen, I I looked for a party that I felt I could be myself and really focus on representation. And that was the Green Party. So that's why I ran then. And now, you know, it's been an interesting road to end up actually running for leadership. And it, it honestly started with other people saying, we would like you to be leader. And thinking, you know, if I'm the right person to do this right now, I'm going to step up to the plate and take the opportunity. And I think the idea there is we need science at the moment in leadership. And we also need good communication, connection, speaking to individuals, and also a representation of lived experience of a lot of the things that we're currently dealing with. And I think a lot of people, whether on purpose or not, probably not on purpose, are pretty out of touch with the lives of most people. And I think we need to get politics back to representation, but also connected to the, to the real experiences that we all go through. And speaking of those lived experiences and how they are integrated into your platform, I noticed that uh, reading through the brief executive summary that the first three sections of your platform focus on reconciliation, decolonization, democratic reform, and uh, systemic inequalities in the judicial system. Tell us a little bit about what inspired those sections of your platform and how they apply to you personally, because um, it, it seems as though you're coming from that lived experience. Yes, absolutely. And I'll talk a little bit first about the structure of how we approached platform and policy. And the Green Party policy is developed by members and it's approved, but we wanted to have a process with which we want to approach policy. So the foundations for us were were absolutely based in justice and equity and decolonization, wanting opportunity for people and, and true equality for everybody in life. And that is very personal to me because of what I've been through I also have privileges and I wish to share those and I wish to tear down the barriers that stood in my way that I see in everyone else's way as well. And then following that up by backing it up with evidence and also making sure that we're ready 
very ready for whatever's coming. So the way the platform was structured in the different sections, the first ones are what we think are most foundational, but everything actually works together and is tied back to our values and as greens includes ecological wisdom, etc. So to me, decolonization is primary because it is the heart of the injustice of this country. And the way I think about it is our foundation is, is rotten. And it is not about the people that are, you know, considered settlers on this land so much as the long history of injustice or the Canada's entire history is injustice and colonization. So to really move forward in a way where we're talking about true justice and equity, we have to address this. We have to address the immediate needs and concerns of Indigenous people, communities, nations, but also, you know, moving forward to a true nation-to-nation -nation partnership. And I think this is necessary. The metaphor I like to use is it's like you have a house who, that has a rotten foundation. You don't knock down the house. You put the house up on stilts. You replace the foundation. And you settle it back down. So everything that's fine, we get to keep. But everything that's not, we work on. And then next, democratic reform. The whole concept that we need to have of participatory democracy, of having our government really be for us. Right now, it doesn't feel that way. Right now, it feels like politicians represent government or represent party to us when it really should be the other way around. And so making sure that we actually participate, making sure that our democracy is strong, make sure that we actually have representation and, and that we're going in the right direction of that. There's no corruption. There's no outside control. There's no, you know, there's issues with finances and money with that as well. So all of that, the next step, of course, is to make sure our democracy actually runs well and serves us and that we are the ones with the power in it. And then the next piece about the justice system is fundamental to me because of the way that we're currently approaching society. It's about blame. It's about telling people that they're responsible for the way that their lives have gone, when really we have a society that is so broken that enforces people to end up committing crimes, I suppose, as they're defined. But it's caused by the way our society is run. And so we need to look at the way our entire judicial system runs, whether it's policing or the court system or prisons, um, and say, this doesn't, this doesn't work. And we need to approach every single individual with compassion. We need to be changing the societal framework. We need to be caring for people. We need to say, if we can help you never do these things again, let's make sure that happens, or never give you the opportunity to have to in the first place. And if we can't, maybe you should go somewhere else, but... It's not about punishment. It's about protecting the rest of society. But foundationally, when we don't have, I think, a justice system that is just, we, we aren't going in the right direction. Now, when it comes to your platform and a couple of the other platforms I've seen from the more eco-socialist candidates, mm. the Green Party has a history of being a one-issue party. And we all know from looking at the platforms, the folks that pay attention, that all of the candidates have a multifaceted platform. So how are you and the other candidates going to take a broader message of what the Green Party really stands for other than just being you know, pro-environment and pro-Indigenous rights? Because those two are inextricably linked. But how are you going to carry a more broad message to attract more voters and more members? Very important question. And I think I want to actually center that in the larger conversation about what the party has been in the past and what the purpose of it was. And that's something that I think has not always been clear on the inside. 
and therefore has not been clear on the outside. But how it has been is that the party has been there to advance environmental concerns and more recently talk about climate change. And I think in a way we've succeeded. It is now part of the national conversation. The presence on the stage has brought that forward. But now everybody has environmental policy. And we've always had a bunch of policy about other things, but they haven't been highlighted. But the way I see it is that humans and nature, humanity and nature are integrated. We are part of the same ecosystems. We depend on each other for survival. And it returns to our core values of social justice, of ecological wisdom, of participatory democracy in the way we set things up. And we now need to focus on a much larger picture and talk about everything and also how everything is interconnected. And so I think the key there is to be presenting a very, very clear vision and a clear set of policies about what we actually stand for. And it's a bit complex in that we stand for something that none of the other parties do. We do have very similar policies in some areas to other parties, but the overall framing is different. It's about a concept of society that lasts for generations, that is stable, that is just, it's resilient. And that means we don't believe in the same economic systems. We don't believe that people should be working for their survival. We don't believe that people should be accumulating wealth at the end of the day. It should be about how our communities actually flourish and how to get to a point where that's the case, where you have a role in a community that you take on, but it's not tied to your very survival. Now, when it comes to the leadership race specifically, looking at some of the candidates that are running, Mm All of the Green Party leadership candidates that I've seen and that I've spoken to so far have very, very high qualifications in their fields. They're very smart, intelligent, you know, well-read, educated. Some of the previous leadership races, I won't mention specifically which (laughs) ones those are, have very much been maligned by a lack of information and a lack of education and appealing to the lowest common denominator. However, in federal politics, the parties that usually win elections are the ones that appeal to the broadest amount of voters and they tap in to those feelings, whether they are educated or not. So how are you and other candidates in the Green Party going to broaden that sort of message and appeal to voters that don't typically vote based on someone's qualifications? I love that question because I think it's so important to get beyond qualifications to the quality of communication. And I say that as somebody with a bunch of qualifications because I I I see the danger of it. And especially having worked in the sciences and in scientific communication for a long time. There, we, we've seen it over generations. You run the risk of never being able to describe anything well to anybody, and then you get the separation, and it does not work. In fact, it causes a lot of problems. So that's something that I actually think I'm, I'm perfectly suited to help with at this moment because I've been in that environment and that I've actually worked to build the bridge and say what the most important thing you can do is communicate with the individual, communicate with the heart, communicate with the story, and connect policies to people's lives 
and also understand the type of communication that you need for policies. You should not be spouting a bunch of facts and numbers the majority of the time unless somebody really wants to hear it. You should be talking and speaking to every community itself in the way lives are currently lived and what immediately needs to be changed. The things and the stories that have to be told that actually connect, we, that we connect with each other through. That's the stuff that we need to be doing. And it isn't, it, it isn't easy for the most part. We are information rich, but that, that can't be what we put forward. That just has to be backing us up to show that we're right and we have the other stuff. And you, you keep it back there somewhere if somebody wants to look at it. But it has to be about, about connection and about really being there and building community for what we need and digging into the hope and the creation of our future together with every single person. And therefore, it also has to be done on the ground. But it's, it is a, an issue, and I think that it's something that has been a problem for us in the past, and I would like to see us get past. Now, in terms of representation in your community, in the last federal election, you were one of, if not the only, candidates to present as non-binary and are currently the only one in the Green Party leadership race to also be non-binary. What would it mean to you personally to be able to represent yourself and the greater LGBTQ plus community as a candidate and also as a potential member of parliament? So I don't think I was the only non-binary candidate in the last election. I think there were, there were a few. I believe I may have been the first uh, to come out and be that way publicly, but I don't think, in fact, I know I was not the only one. It's a very interesting thing because I don't, I don't like focusing on identity. I think that you know, it really should be about, about representation, about connection, about story. And on the other side, it, it is absolutely a part of me. The reason I came out is because I had to be honest about who I am. And representation is very important. It's important to make space to show it's possible for somebody with my identity to be here. But more than anything, it's a responsibility that while I am holding the space, I create it and make it safer for others to follow suit. So it means a great deal to me. And at the same time, I don't think it should be the focus because the focus should be everything else. But I also think that that comes from a place of being an intersectional, marginalized person where you kind of want to lean away from it because you don't want to be told the only reason you're there is for your identity. You want to have value beyond beyond your characteristics that you have no choice over. So the work you've done or everything else, you want people to be valued for who they are and what they contribute. And so that's, that's the important part about creating space too for the white or queer and trans community would be to make sure that people feel welcome and that they, you know, it's not about who they are, but who they are does not stand in the way of participation. And from a more practical standpoint, our policies are pretty far behind and pretty prejudiced still <laughs> Canada wide. So it's really important to have that lived experience as well for somebody to influence policy and point stuff out here and there that doesn't work. And that's true from, from general like heteronormativity to cisnormativity and um, breaking the gender binary too. I firmly believe that we need to question the gender binary to have true equity for anyone. Agreed. And that's also why I brought up the other leadership races before, because, because we've seen and it's been shown even as recently as the appointment of Christopher Freeland as the new finance minister. People were 
all over her and all over the prime minister for choosing her as the finance minister because of her quote unquote qualifications. Well, how many white guys have we seen over the last 150 years been appointed or elected as representatives of this country that had no qualifications? We can probably count hundreds, if not thousands of them. So the, the notion that anyone's identity should necessarily preclude or exclude them in any way, shape, or form is ridiculous. And I think that as the conversation continues, we'll begin to see more folks that are more representative of the communities that they're in and the folks that vote for them be represented in our House of Commons. And I look forward to seeing a more balanced representation in the future. Now, the last thing I want to ask you about is the leadership campaign for yourself so far. What has been the most surprising thing that you've found when running for leadership of a federal party? That's a tough one because it, I think it's been so different as doing it during the pandemic. So there's, there's been a lot of surprises and it's been different simply because of that. I think the most surprising thing has been also the most amazing thing in that, you know, I didn't have a positive, entirely positive experience in politics before. It's tough. Identity is part of that. And I would say also an identity, you know, just knowing that it's possible to be there and seeing people there means that it's, you deal with some of the issues of participation and that's something that is a barrier. And that's the thing that we've been dealing with in this campaign is I'm, I'm surprised and overjoyed that we've managed to put together a team and create a community that is extremely welcoming and joyful and happy against the backdrop of what is usually really ugly and unpleasant. And that has given me so much hope. And I'm also surprised it's managed to happen because of how much campaigns are always so awful. And it's, it's amazing. <laughs> Amina Kuttner is the co-founder of the Moonlight Institute, a recently developed nonprofit organization that seeks to create a framework for an equitable and just future. You can find them on Twitter at Amita Kuttner, and you can also find them on their website, aminakuttner.ca. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I wish you a pleasant evening and good luck on the campaign trail. Thank you so much. Like what you've heard on the show? Consider becoming a patron and get exclusive access to early content, extras, and more. Visit patreon.com forward slash left behind podcast to subscribe today. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the LB podcast. I'd like to thank Amina Kuttner, Jeff Rubin, and Peter Julian for being guests on the show this week. And I also want to thank all of our Patreon subscribers for their support of the show, as well as all of our followers on social media. Stay tuned for more updates on our website, leftbehindpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And until next time, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye for now.